Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Brenda Davis. She's a registered dietitian. She's one of the leading plant-based pioneers and an internationally acclaimed speaker. She's regarded as a rock star of plant-based nutrition. Uh, she was referred to as the godmother of vegan dietitians by Veg News. So, Brenda, thank you for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure, Richard. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, tell me a bit about your background. Were you like a ferocious meat eater that converted, or what's your past been like? <laughs> well, you know, I, I was raised uh, in a very traditional family where we ate lots of meat. My dad was actually in the Air Force. We lived in Germany, and my, my favorite dinner was Wiener Schnitzel. So, so I started the transition when I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s. And I had been married about 10 years, had two little kids, and I was community nutritionist or registered dietitian. It was a real challenge because back then I didn't even know if there were any vegetarian or vegan dietitians on the planet. It just this was in the late 80s. So it was it was just really not much of a thing. You know, I was a registered dietitian. I became a vegan or essentially vegan in the late 80s. And it was a challenge because, uh, as I mentioned, I really didn't know if there were any other registered dietitians who were vegan on the planet. And I felt very alone. And I was very uh, unsure of what my future would be as a dietitian, because all of the nutrition resources that I used were based on omnivorous diets. They certainly weren't based on on vegan or vegetarian diets in those days. And I wasn't sure how I could be a registered dietitian and be a vegetarian or a vegan. So it was quite a challenge in the early days. But uh, I remember, you know, thinking to myself, do I need to change professions? And I thought, you know what, if I don't have the courage to stay and speak my truth and 
and try to make a difference who will. So I, I just uh, decided to, uh, to have the courage to stay and stand up for what I believed in. You know, maybe it's a stupid question, but why do you believe that veganism or maybe vegetarianism is a better way to eat than alternative ways? Well, you know, and I wouldn't even necessarily say that for everyone, it's a, a better way to eat because I, I've worked in many parts of the world where it's really important for them to have some animal foods because they don't have a lot of access to food. Generally, they need to eat what they have. But my basic premise is that a plant-based dietary pattern for individuals and for the planet is more ecologically sustainable. It's, it's more ethically justifiable and it's more healthful than our current dietary patterns. And so to me, it just makes sense that we start shifting in, in this direction. And it's not just to me, we, we have all kinds of, you know, like the Eat Lancet Commission and the FAO WHO uh, that, are, that are urging a shift towards a more plant-based diet. I'm a Canadian and even in Canada, our new national food guide is very much urging people to choose more plant-based options because of all of these factors. Well, if you say this diet is not for everybody, but the government pushes it, at some point, will that turn into like you're forced to eat this way? I don't think so. And I, I you know, um, when I say it's not for everybody, I, I mean, I think everybody would do well on a plant-based diet. But for some people, like I work in the Marshall Islands doing research on diabetes, and in that area, they're very dependent upon fish. So it's fish and plants primarily. And to say, well, you know, eating fish is not ecologically sustainable, so you shouldn't be doing it, wouldn't work very well in that area. So there are some places in the world where it makes sense to include some animal-based foods. And I, you know, we can see the transition starting to happen. We're in the early stages, but, uh, but I think even people who are meat eaters are looking to eat a little bit more uh, in, a, in a manner that's a little bit more ecologically sustainable. And so they're open to, to trying some of the plant-based options more than they might've been 10 years ago. So how do you view um, someone that just has what's called you know, a balanced diet, meat, vegetables, et cetera, versus a vegetarian versus a vegan? Uh, how do I view them? I, I definitely- well, I mean, in terms of like, not, not the person, but- in terms of the health outcomes, really, is what I mean. I'm sorry. Oh, well, there's there's not even a question about that, because we have several studies. We have a study in the United States that's been following 96,000 people for, for years, well, since 2002. We have another one in the UK that's been following people since 1996. We have another one in uh, Taiwan, and, and the one in the UK is about 69,000 people. And then the one in, in uh, Taiwan is... is there's one that's 12,000, another that's about 6,000 people. And what we've been doing is following similar health conscious individuals who essentially, they exercise the same amount, smoke the same amount, uh, you know, we control for alcohol intake for all of those lifestyle factors. And we've been looking at their health outcomes. And, you know, we've been having literally dozens and dozens of research articles published on the findings. And so what they're comparing in the two, the American and the UK study uh, is omnivores versus semi-vegetarians versus uh, pesco-vegetarians, which are people that are vegetarian plus fish versus lacto-ovo-vegetarians versus vegans. And that's the, the same in the UK and, and the States. And then in Taiwan, it's just vegetarians versus non-vegetarians. 
And basically what they found is that, um, well, in the Adventist uh, Health Study 2, the vegans had about a 15% lower mortality than the omnivores, than similar health conscious omnivores. In Epic Oxford, it was about 32% less heart disease. Uh, in the Adventist Health Study 2, the vegans had 75% less hypertension, 62% less diabetes, and 52% and, and less kidney disease. In Epic Oxford, uh, there were 19% less, um, less cancer. In, in the Adventist Health Study 2, it was 16%. Um, in Epic Oxford, 40% less cataract, 72% less diverticular disease in the vegans versus the omnivores. And the vegetarians were somewhere in between. And lots of findings in Taiwan as well, less heart disease, less, less hypertension, less diabetes, and so on and so on. And so it's been very consistent in all of these studies when we compare fairly looking at, you know, a, a controlling for all potential confounding variables that the vegans in terms of chronic degenerative disease do the best. Lacto-ovo vegetarians in the middle and omnivores the worst. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, also, vegans, I mean, how does anyone figure that out? A vegan doesn't eat the same thing as another vegan. Oh, no, it's, that's no question. Less, no question. Uh, all of the, very different. Yeah. And, and vegan, all vegan means is that they're not consuming animal products. And so there are all kinds of different levels of quality vegan diets. I mean, some vegan diets are potato chips and Coke. And some, some vegan diets are, you know, whole plant foods, which of course, people who eat whole plant foods will do a lot better than people who are eating junk food, vegan diets, but overall, so they're, you know, lumping people in a category based on what they include. So the omnivores include, you know, animal products, the, the pesco vegetarians include all plants plus fish and, and dairy products and lacto-ovo vegetarians, dairy products and eggs and vegans, no animal products. And so it's, you know, and there are differences, for example, in, in, the, in the US study, the diets are slightly higher quality than they are in the UK, for example, they're more a little bit more health conscious. But generally, the way that they try to control for it is they're selecting health conscious populations and, and the omnivores are health conscious. And as a matter of fact, they've looked at uh, in both the UK and the US, the whole cohort, how they compare to the general population and their rates of, of death and disease are about half what they are in the general population because we're looking at health conscious individuals. But again, uh, you know, I would think vegans may eat very differently, you know, one vegan to another. So oh, of course they how do, do you think that impacts the, uh, the studies? Does that, you know, how much does that change the signal? 
Would it well, be it, more it, positive if they ate better or what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I absolutely think it would be much more positive if they ate better. And if we look at the three populations that we've been following for years, that, you know, Taiwan, US and UK, the US and Taiwan, I think are eating better than the UK cohort. And so, and, and we've looked specifically at the differences. So in, in the US, they're eating more fruits and vegetables, they're eating more whole grains, they're eating more legumes than, than those in the UK. And so they do better. And also in the US, they tend to have more fortified food. So they, they're not short of calcium, they're not short of B12. Whereas in the UK, there are fewer fortified foods and so they don't do as well in that regard. So definitely there are differences, but we've looked at those differences. And, and it's also interesting, Richard, that they we've looked at um, diet quality. There've been many studies looking at diet quality. So the healthy diet index and the Mediterranean diet index and, and or healthy eating index and Mediterranean diet index and comparing all of these different diets and consistently people who are eating vegan diets have the highest quality diets, which means they eat the most fruits and vegetables, they eat the most whole grains, they eat the most legumes and all of these foods that are highly protective to health. So these are the foods that have the most fiber, the most phytochemicals, the most antioxidants, the most stanols and sterols, and all of the things that we have you know, found to be tied to reduce risk of chronic disease. What are some of the do's and don'ts that make it more successful versus not? Yeah, so, well, you know, one of the biggest don'ts is don't eat a junk food vegan diet. Uh, another don't is is just be really careful not to um, ignore some of the critical nutrients that are not very plentiful in plant foods. So whether you're eating an omnivorous diet or a, or a vegan diet, there are some nutrients that can be tougher to get uh, in one or the other. Uh, and, and with vegan diets, it's vitamin B12, vitamin D, iodine that possibly can fall short if, if you're not including either fortified foods or supplements or, you know, finding a decent source. B12, you're not going to get from plants uh, in any reliable way. So you need either fortified foods or a supplement. Vitamin D, well, if you don't get enough sunshine, it doesn't matter if you're omnivorous or, or vegan, you know, the, vitamin D isn't that plentiful in, in the food supply, except in fortified foods and fish and a um, little bit in eggs. And, you know, so there are a few foods, but it it's, it's not as easy to get. And then iodine is an issue if you're not using iodized salt or using seaweed or seafood. So that's, you know, those are the things that people need to, to be really conscious of. So you don't want to switch from a meat and potatoes diet to a pasta and bagel diet. You want to switch from a meat and potato diet to a beans and greens diet, where you're eating a lot of healthy whole plant foods. And you want to be making sure you're getting enough calories. That's not a big issue for most people in North America. But you're also including a, a reasonable variety of foods and you're including legumes because in in an omnivorous diet this the you know key sources of protein and iron and zinc are meats and plant-based diet they're you know legumes become that the the big source of those nutrients so you want to make sure you're eating a good varied diet and most people in north america didn't grow up eating lentils and tofu so it it means you know making some adjustments in in the way that you're eating for sure if you like this podcast 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Do you see that vegans tend to address all these things or do some of them just go into it without the knowledge and then they don't feel well? It's interesting you should ask that because, you know, I, I basically spent the last 40 years of my life creating resources that help people achieve extra, you know, really exceptional health, eating either exclusively or predominantly plant-based diets. I think there, there was a lack of resources for, for several years. And I've, I've written, you know, 13 books now to try to help people ensure that they're creating, designing decent diets. And, and so I see it all. I see so many people doing it exceptionally well, raising families, you know, making sure that everything's there. But I've also run across people who, you know, have just gone without much, many resources to assist them in the transition. And those are the people that that sometimes can get into trouble and particularly with vitamin B12. So, and I, I think now, I mean, this wasn't the case maybe 40 years ago, but today I don't think there are very many vegans that aren't aware of the few nutrients that they need to make sure they, they have a source of. And, and of course, the, the one that stands out is B12. What, what are some of the, um, I mean, some people that go on the vegan diet, I've, I've asked personally, you know, they, they just really don't feel well and it doesn't work for them. Why do you think that happens? Does it happen to a high percent or a very low percent? Why? Um, I, I think it happens because people are, are first of all, uh, not making the transition appropriately. Secondly, sometimes making the transition too fast. And so you have, you know, you might not feel well, if um, you don't allow time for your gut flora, for example, to adjust to a higher fiber diet, you may feel bloated and gassy and uh, just not feel very good. But the people that make the transition, my experience most of the time is that uh, they feel more energetic, they feel, um, you know, just just better all around, they, they lose weight, they feel lighter, they feel better. And, and I think one of the big problems when people make the transition, when they don't feel well, is that they haven't replaced the foods appropriately. So you can't just say, well, I'm not going to eat meat and dairy anymore. You need to think about what foods you're going to replace those with. So for, for meat, you need to be eating enough legumes, enough you know, of the meat replacements for dairy, greens and beans, and you can get calcium from, but also fortified non-dairy milks. I mean, I've been eating vegan for about, you know, close to 40 years now. And I shouldn't say that over 30 years now, probably about 33 years since 1989. And I can tell you, I can run as fast as I did when I was 30. I can still do physically all of the things I could do. I can still do the splits and handstands and headstands and, you know, all that stuff. I don't see a big difference in my body and I'm in my sixties now. And so my gut feels great. I've never been on medications, you know, and I can say most of my relatives who, who are eating an omnivorous diet can't say the same. And, and I know many, many people who are like me, who are long-term vegans, who are extraordinary, extraordinarily healthy for their age. And if you look at the people of the blue zones, um, these are the places where people live 
the longest, healthiest lives, where there are more centenarians than anywhere else on the planet. Every single one of the blue zones is predominantly plant-based. One of the blue zones is actually in the United States. It's in a place called Loma Linda, California. And that's where the Seventh-day Adventists are who have extraordinarily long lives. They live on average 10 years longer than the average American. And I can remember being in Loma Linda and, you know, meeting a lot of the people there who in their 80s and 90s are still you know, super active and and still, you know, I remember running across a 92 year old man who was still speaking all over the world and doing all those sorts of things. And and this is what we see in the blue zone. And I think that that tells that, you know, to me, it's really the acid test. What do people experience when they first go on it, vegan diet, and then after like a month or two, and then after longer than that, what do Well, in my experience, and I can tell you, I've worked with a lot of people who have made this transition, and I can tell you from personal experience as well, because my family transitioned. And generally, what happens in the first month or so is you lose weight. You feel more energetic, uh, partly because you've you've lost weight. And for me, my you know, I had a stomachache my whole life. That disappeared because I stopped consuming dairy, and obviously I was I was sensitive to dairy. So for a lot of people, they feel better. And then you know down the road, if you're not doing it properly and you're lacking something like vitamin B12, you will definitely start feeling worse. If you're doing it properly, you will continue to feel great <laughs> for for decades and that's been my experience so i i haven't seen a lot of people who have told me that this isn't working for them those that i have had say this isn't working for me i've worked with them to correct some of their shortfalls and uh, we haven't had too much of an issue i have had a few people who have been allergic to legumes and nuts and seeds, and and then it becomes very difficult. Uh, But for the vast majority of people I've worked with, it's not been a problem. They feel great. What do people tell you that they experience feeling? Uh, What are some anecdotal things that surprise you or delight? I'll tell you a couple of stories because one of the things that I've had the privilege of doing is doing research in the Marshall Islands. And the Marshall Islands, I don't know if you've even heard of the Marshall Islands, but there are islands in the Pacific about somewhere halfway between Hawaii and Australia. And they have among the highest rates of, of diabetes in the world and the highest death rates from diabetes in the world. And I was part of a team that went into the Marshall Islands to do a lifestyle intervention to see if we could help people um, uh, treat or reverse their diabetes using, you know, diet and exercise. And of course, we used plant based diets, Uh, we did allow for them to eat fish. But in the clinic, we just used 100% plant based diets. Uh, But anyway, one of the things that I noticed, which I found absolutely fascinating, was how fast people uh, started their bodies started to change. And, And I'll never forget, within a week, one lady told me that She said, I have had pain in my joints and difficulty walking for 20 years. She had been a diabetic for over 30 years. And she said, one week of doing this and my pain is gone. She said, I can't believe that it could have been that simple. 
my pain is gone. Where I had several people who, you know, one person said that I go to the bathroom normally once a week. I'm going to the bathroom every day. I can't believe how much better that feels. And people saying one one lady who was actually a a fairly high level politician in the Ministry of Health said to me, I've had a like a it's almost like a foggy or fuzzy brain for 10 years. And she said, you know, two weeks of doing this and my head feels clear. I just can't believe it. So those are the kinds of things we would hear on a regular basis. I did lifestyle intervention uh, demonstration project in the Marshall Islands for the medical school and the government there. And we took uh, 10 individuals for 10 days. And we had one young woman who in probably nine days from the time we tested her blood till the end of the intervention, uh, her triglycerides dropped in half and her blood cholesterol dropped 25%. And she had a familial issue, hyperlipidemia, and she just couldn't believe the change in that short time, which was greater than the medications she had ever, you know, that she had been using. And then one man in the United States who had type 2 diabetes for uh, 20 years was on 17 pills a day and 40 units of insulin. In less than a year of doing a whole food plant-based diet, he was off every single one of his medications and his diabetes was gone. He had heart disease, he had peripheral artery disease, he had kidney disease, they all disappeared. His Every single one of his lab uh, measures returned to normal. And he was so stunned because he had been told by his doctors that all of his conditions were, were progressive and irreversible. And uh, when he went in to, to see his doctor after you know all of these changes, he asked his doctor why he didn't tell him that all he had to do was change his diet and lifestyle and, and he could reverse all of these diseases. And his doctor said, I, I didn't tell you because I didn't know. I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't see it for my own two with my own two eyes. And even they even did a PET scan on him after the um, you know doing the plant based diet for for a year. And he went from you know having severe coronary artery disease, a, a, you know a fifty percent ejection fraction, uh, just you know bad coronary artery disease to having absolutely normal cardiac function, no signs of, you know, his, his PET scan showed no signs of abnormal function, normal ejection fraction, all of that. And so that, you know, that kind of change we, we see. And, you know, his son who was diagnosed with cancer, who, who came to me um, to assist him with, you know, coming up with a dietary protocol that could uh, help his chance of survival. Um, he was the one that got his dad to come to me with, you know, his diabetes. And in fact, the son, he ended up uh, going into remission with his cancer, which was uh, very, uh, very fortunate. That doesn't always happen, but, uh, but in his case, it did. And so we see remarkable changes in individuals, especially individuals with chronic diseases, like type 2 diabetes and, and cardiovascular disease. Have you spoken to or studied or hung out with like hardcore carnivore or keto type people? And if so, what's your observation? You know, I, I, I do hang out with hardcore carnivores <laughs> um, because I have family members that are hard, 
core carnivores like my brother. Well, I wouldn't say he's a carnivore. He's an omnivore. And my observation. No, no, I mean, not, not omnivores, but like carnivore, people on the carnivore diet or keto and stuff like that. Oh, no, no. And, and I have I have had some clients who have come to me that have been on the keto diet and it hasn't worked well for them. They lost weight. They did well in those respects. Their their blood glucose levels went down, um, but they don't feel well. And uh, they normally people who are keto are not going to come to me unless it's not working well for them and they want to try something else. And so those kinds of people that have come to me for assistance to transition to a healthier diet, they do very well when they make the, the transition. So I've had several clients who have experienced. Well, the reason I ask you is I've, I've seen and interacted with people that are on the carnivore diet, the keto diet. And some, a lot of them look amazing and they feel great. And then I've seen people that are vegans as well, that some that feel great and look great. And I've also seen in both camps, people that don't feel well and don't look good either. Yeah, I've seen exactly. plenty of vegans that look awful and yeah. are obviously yeah. not healthy, but there's something they're doing wrong. And then same thing yeah. with, you know, you know, with pretty much with all diets, I've seen both, but why do you think that is? I think people, I, for the carnivore and keto diets, I think they're nutritionally inadequate diets. I think that they, um, you know, keto diet was rated last in, you know, the USDA or the US uh, diet rankings, um, because it's it, it, nutritionally so deficient. So it's lacking a lot of the nutrients that are found in plant foods, because it's too low in plant foods. And so people, you know, aren't going to do well long term. And there, there actually have been a number of studies that have looked at carbohydrate intakes and mortality and risk of heart disease and all of those things. And generally, the lower the carbohydrate intake, the worse people do. One of the biggest studies showed, I think it was a 58% increased risk of death in the lowest intake of carbohydrates, because carbohydrates are inherent to plant foods. Uh, all plant foods contain carbohydrates. And so when you do low carbohydrate, you're generally doing fairly low plant diets. And so you're minimizing things like fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants and anti-inflammatory compounds and all of these things that are actually highly protective. And so in the short term, I think keto diets can induce weight loss and that always makes people feel better. But I think in the long term, people are shooting themselves in the foot because in the long term, they're reducing the very things in the diet or minimizing the very things in the diet that are the most protective. And they're increasing a lot of the things in the diet that are quite, quite pathogenic. Well, it sounds like though too, vegans, as you mentioned, need to supplement with B12, iodine. I forget the third thing you mentioned. So I guess in maybe in smaller ways, uh, the vegan diet is deficient as well. But with oh, supplementation is okay, right? Yeah. Well, the thing is, is there's only one nutrient that you absolutely have to, you know, complement in a vegan diet, and that's B12. So iodine, you can get plenty of iodine from seafood, or not from seafood, from seaweed. So vegans can eat seaweed. If they eat seaweed, that's a really good source. But they can do what omnivores do also and use iodized salt. So it's not necessary to supplement if you're using something like that. Um, for vitamin D, uh, if they get enough sunshine, they don't have to worry about it. If they don't, then they could use fortified foods or some sort of supplement, as many omnivores do as well. You know, I read that uh, legumes may have lectins and um, sometimes need to be sprouted. You know, plants have various defenses. If you eat their seeds, 
and fruits and things like that. How does that play into a, a proper vegan diet where you're avoiding maybe some of the plant defense compounds that might make you sick? Yeah. So, so lectins, I, you know, I think are a little bit of a, a non-issue to be, to be honest, if you cook, see lectins are destroyed by cooking. And so legumes, you don't usually eat raw kidney beans. You need to cook them really well before eating them. And when you cook them really well, you destroy the lectins and it becomes pretty much a non-issue. And, 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 you know, I think again, the acid test for that is look at the longest lived populations on the planet. Every single one of them, bar none, all of the blue zones, every single one, use legumes as a dietary staple. If lectins were so dangerous, they probably wouldn't be a staple in all of the longest lived people on the planet. So I think that, again, it just tells us something. Um, you know, and, and so there are anti-nutrients in plants where, you know, that are there to protect the plants from predators and so forth. But a lot of those anti-nutrients, whether it's phytates or, or you know, oxalates or whatever it is, we can reduce them and we do reduce them in food preparation, but also many of them can actually be protective in reasonable amounts like phytates have been shown to protect against certain cancers and so on and so forth. So I think that uh, we need to, to take sort of the anti-nutrients with a grain of salt because there are so many ways of, of reducing or you know, um, getting around any potential issues. One of the biggest issues with anti-nutrients is they can reduce the absorption of, of minerals. But, but if we soak them or sprout them or yeast them or, you know, cook them, we generally reduce at least some of those anti-nutrients. And, and overall, they're not a huge issue. I certainly don't think lectins are a huge issue. No, that's, that's good to know. I was wondering about that. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your protocols? It, it sounds like you'll probably have tons of resources because you've been in the game so long. So where can people go to start learning and evaluating what to do for themselves? Yeah, well, I've, as I mentioned, I've written uh, uh, 13 books. The, the 13th is still uh, in press, but uh, 12 are out. And, and so I do have a few books on, on diabetes and I have a lot of books that are really specific to constructing a plant-based diet that will really work for you. So the latest one is called Nourish, the Definitive Plant-Based Guide for Families. I did with Dr. Reshma Shah, who's a pediatrician uh, from San Francisco, and then uh, Becoming Vegan, uh, the Express and Comprehensive Editions. And so those are just some of the more current books. And then the diabetes books, uh, Kick Diabetes Essentials and Kick Diabetes Cookbook. And the book I'm, I just finished writing with my writing partner, Vicento Molina, and my son, Corey Davis, is on plant-based protein. And that'll be out probably in the next few months. So yeah, so my book's a good way to, you know, to find out a little bit more about my recommendations. And then I do have a website, brendadavisrd.com. Brenda, I do have one question I forgot to ask you. Um, yeah, what about vegetables and fruits that aren't traditionally cooked and may have, you know, or, or vegetables that may have substantial pesticides on them? You know, if you're a vegan, uh, how do you navigate that so it doesn't negatively impact you? You know, that's such a great question, Richard. It really is. And, and what we generally advise is for people to choose organic if it's accessible to them, grow their own foods, do all of those things. And then if those things, if they, if they really don't have access or can't afford organic foods, 
I would suggest that they get familiar with this. There's a, a really good little resource from the Environmental Working Group. And the Environmental Working Group every year puts out something called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. And that basically analyze many, many fruits and vegetables for their pesticide content. And they rate them according to which one. So the dirty dozen are the 12 most contaminated and the clean 15 are the, the 15 least contaminated. And so I would say, you know, buy conventional for the clean 15 and then try as much as you can to buy organic for the dirty dozen. And so there are tools like that that you can use. Generally, there have been a number of studies done showing that that um, you are better off eating produce that's conventionally grown than not eating produce. So, so um, you, you enjoy health benefits even with conventionally grown produce, uh, probably greater benefits with organic uh, grown produce though. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much uh, for coming. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. Take care. All right, hold on a second. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.